You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Today on Experiencing Data, I talked to Nancy Hensley, the Chief Digital Officer of IBM Analytics. Nancy brings a lot of experience and has a lot to say about how user experience and design have become very integral to IBM's success, especially as they move their applications into the cloud space and they really try to bring the price point down and make their services and applications much more low touch in order to access a new base of of subscribers and users. So I really enjoyed this talk with her about what the designers and people focused on the product experience have been doing at IBM to keep their company relevant and keep them pushing forward in terms of delivering really good experiences to their customers. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with Nancy Hensley. So hello, everybody. I'm super stoked to have Nancy Hensley, uh, the Chief Digital Officer of IBM Analytics. How's it going, Nancy? Good. I'm happy to be here. Happy Friday. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's getting cold here in Cambridge, Mass. You're in Chicago area. Do I remember correctly? Yeah, it's a little bit chilly here as well. Nice. Well, so it begins. <laughs> <laughs> You've done uh, quite a bit of stuff at IBM. When we talked to when we had our little pre-planning call, you talked a lot of about growth that's been happening over at IBM. And I wanted to talk to you specifically about the role that design and experience has played in how you guys have changed some of your products and how you're talking to new customers and, and that type of thing. So can you tell people, first of all, a little bit, just a little bit about your background and, and what you're currently doing? And, and then we can maybe jump into some of those things. Sure. Happy to. Thank you for having me again. I think I'm one of those people that doesn't fit nicely into a box of, are you product? Are you marketing? I am a little bit of both. Most of my IBM career, I have moved in between product marketing and product management. So that's why I love digital so much, because it really is a nice mixture. And in particular, growth hacking, because it combines all the things I love, which is including data as a part of what we do. So what I'm doing right now as the Chief Digital Officer in the Analytics Division in Hybrid Cloud is how how do we transform our products to make them more consumable, more accessible? We have best-in-class products in data science, in unified governance and integration, in hybrid data management products. But our products and our business has built on a traditional face-to-face model. And so for many... There is even a perception that we're not as accessible to them. And that's what we're looking to change. So creating those lower entry points, making it easier for people who didn't have access to us before to start small and grow through a digital channel, through a lower entry point product, and then scale up from there. That's really what we're trying to do. And and as part of a bigger mission to really democratize data science, and I kind of cringe when I say that word, but... I think it's really important for more clients to be able to be more data-driven and uh, have tools that are easy to use and leverage data science to optimize their business. So part of the way we're doing that is to develop a digital route to market. We're pretty excited about it. I think a lot of our listeners probably come from 
internal roles at companies. So they might be someone that's purchasing vendor software as opposed to like a SaaS company, right? Where they have an act, they may have a closer role to marketing and, and all of that. So can you tell me what, what you guys are doing there in terms of part of the thing, like with my, with some, with my experience is that some of the legacy companies, the older companies that are out there, they tend to get associated with big giant enterprise installations, really crappy user experience. Like you just, well, it's just so powerful. You have to put up with like all this stuff and, (laughs) you know, people's tendency these days to accept that poor experience as just status quo is changing, right? We're we're, we're used to better experience. So what have you guys done to like, not not that you're to blame, I I can't (laughs) IBM product that's out there, but I'm sure that that opinion exists. And how do you guys adapt to that? And when there's upstart, you know, analytics companies coming out with other things, like what do you guys do to address the experience? Well, there's certainly a perception that IBM is that big, complicated, enterprise-focused product out there. We see the data. There's a lot of articles. There's a lot of feedback. There's analyst reports that all validate that clients are trading off complexity or features and functions for consumability because they got to get things done and they have less people to do it. So we fully recognize that. And the where we started to look for that was how we first started to make things much more accessible, even some of not just our cloud products, right? Because that's pretty easy. If you have stuff in the cloud, it's pretty accessible. But our on-prem products as well, so for clients that are, are running analysis behind the private cloud, whether it's a statistical product or a predictive analytics product or a data science project or even work they're doing on their data catalog, all of that was not something people would go to the cloud to look for, but there were still things that they needed, especially financial and healthcare. And there's large and small companies on both sides. One of the things we set out to do is how do we create that cloud-like experience for clients that are running things behind their firewall? And we started a project about a year ago to look at some of our on-prem products and create that experience where literally you could, within a couple of clicks, download and try and be using the product within 15 minutes. That was our goal. As opposed to before, where you would have to contact an IBM salesperson and get them to come out and meet with you and then set up a trial. So that's what we started off to change was the at least make it accessible. And then as we progress that capability, we started changing our pricing and packaging to be appropriate to create that entry level point to create a shift to subscription based buying, which is a lot of clients want every you want to buy everything with subscription these days, I think. And then the last part of that shift for us has been to really focus on the experience because a lot of these products were not born digital. We really need to make sure that when clients were coming through that channel, that it was a great experience. And that's really where design and experience came into play for us. How did you know what was wrong beyond like, you know, broad surveys or just that general feeling that like, oh, it's the big giant bloated software, model, like, <laughs> that, like the stereotype, right? How do you guys get right. into the meat and potatoes of like, like you said that there is a, it sounds like there was a benchmark there, of, you know, 15 minutes in that first onboarding experience. But Can you tell us a little bit of maybe, I don't know if you have a specific example about how you figured out what do we need to change about this software application to make it easier to get value out of the analytics or the data that's there? I got lots of examples. So I'll start (laughs) off with one that clients actually are very familiar with, which is SPSS statistics, because a lot of us use that in college. And that was a product that actually turned 50 years old this year. 
been around a while. A lot of people still using a lot. And most of our base of users for statistics, I think if you look at the demographics of it, over 60% were under the age of 25. So their buying preferences were very different (laughs) than they were when they started off in 1968. So, And we looked at the verbatims from our NPS feedback, and it was clear that clients really wanted a much more simplified and flexible experience in buying SPSS statistics and having access to it. A lot of times students have to get it really quickly for a project because, you know, they might have waited till the last minute. And they wanted a much more flexible subscription-based program. They might only use it for a few months and then come back to it. So that was one of the first things that we implemented was to change the buying experience or the consumption model. We didn't actually change the product at that point. We just changed the consumption model to see if, in fact, that actually will help us hack some growth on that product. And it absolutely did. And since then, we've actually gone back and changed the product as well. It's got a whole new UI for its 50th anniversary. Joke around that's got a got a facelift for its 50th anniversary. Does it have a green screen mode? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's it is a completely different experience, not just from a buying perspective, but also from a UI perspective as well. And then we have other other products too that have been around, you know, maybe not 50 years, but have been very popular products like our DB2 warehouse and cloud and our DB2 database that clients have been buying for years to run their enterprises. And we wanted to make sure that, again, as we created a SaaS alternative of these products, that it was extremely consumable. And so we've been looking specifically, you know, is it easy to figure out which version to buy, how much to buy, what it's going to do for you? Like I said, which version, you know, how do I calculate things? We've been really looking at the experience of that as if there was no salesperson at all, how do we help clients through that buying experience? So I'm curious, does... The when you start helping them through the buying experience, does any of that thinking or that strategy around you know handholding someone through that experience happen in the product itself? Once I'm guessing you're downloading a package at some point, you're running an installer, and at that point, is there? Did you continue that kind of you know that handholding process to get them out of the weeds of the installation and and the onboarding into the actual? Is this tool right for what I need it to do? You know, everything else being friction up until that point where you're actually working with your data. Did you guys carry that through? And can you talk about that? You're hitting on one of my favorite topics, which is onboarding. Because a lot of our products weren't born in the cloud originally, they weren't born to be digital originally, doesn't mean they can't be digitally consumed. We just have to really focus on the experience. And one of those things is onboarding. And let's take DB2 in particular, which we're in the process of creating an onboarding experience for DB2 Warehouse on Cloud. For anybody who's used DB2, and we do have an updated UI for that, they can jump in and, and start using it. But that's <laughs> we want the people who haven't used it before. So we just started working with a couple different onboarding tools to create these experiences. Our goal was to be able, at least on the offering management side, alongside our partners with design, to create these experiences in a very agile way and make them measurable, which is my second favorite topic, which is instrumentation. Make them measurable, but not have a burden on development. Because the fact is, in almost any organization, development wants to build features and functions. And so whenever we talked about this, it was prioritized lower, right? Because they want to build new capabilities. They, they're less enthusiastic about building in things like onboarding experiences. And so what some of the tools like AppQs give us is a way to 
um, make it codeless to us, right? Where we can create these experiences and then pass the code snippet and then measure whether those are effective or not, because we actually see those flowing through segment into our amplitude as a part of the funnel. So we've got some great feedback as to whether they're working or where they're falling down. We can create checklists, if you will, of things that we want the clients to do that we know makes the product sticky and see if they actually complete that checklist. So it's giving us so much better view because before what we would see is, well, the client has uh, registered for a trial, they've downloaded the trial, they've created their instance, and then boom, we kind of fall off the cliff. What happened? Now we're getting a much better view to what's actually going on since the product's been instrumented, as well as the view we're getting in from the onboarding experiences. So for every one of these you know, applications that you're trying to you know, move into a cloud model or, or simplify, whether it's cloud, like to, to me, the deployment, the deployment model doesn't matter, right? It's really about removing the friction points, whether it's on-prem software or not. And I think we, we, tend to, we all tend to use the word cloud to kind of feel like, oh, it's this browser-based thing. There's no hard clients. There's no running scripts at a terminal and all that kind of stuff. But do you guys have a like a set of benchmarks or something that you use that you establish for every one of these products that's going to go through a redesign? And we do. Okay. Uh, we've got a, a set of criteria. It's really broken down into two pieces. And whether they're whether it's going to be a cloud product or an on-premise product, because I actually have a mix of both. There is what we call the MVP side, which might be something that is not born in the cloud. It's not a new product. And we're looking to create a a lower entry point, a really good trial experience, a very optimized journey. We're even doing things like taking some of the capabilities that we used to have from a technical perspective and making those more digitally available. So online proof of concepts, hands-on labs that you do online instead of waiting for a a technical salesperson to come out to see you, chatbots that can answer your questions faster even before you talk to a sales rep. All of that's included in the in what we call the MVP portion of the criteria that we look at. Once we get that base, oh, and pricing and packaging, right? Pricing packaging has got to be right <laughs> for the product, for the marketplace. Got to have that right product market fit so that you get a good, valuable product, but a low enough entry point where somebody can start small and scale up. And then the second part of the criteria is where we, you know, where the growth magic happens, where we're doubling down a lot more on the experimentation, where we're making sure that we've got onboarding instrumentation we want done in the MVP phase. We don't always get it, (laughs) but our development partners really understand the value of that now, which is great. But more often, we're getting it in the second phase of when we're doing the transformation. And through that, then we're getting a lot more feedback where we can create the onboarding experience. We can do even more on the optimized journey. We're doing a lot of growth hacking in that space in terms of optimizing things like how clear is information on the pricing page? Is it easy for the customer to figure out what they need to buy? What the pricing is for that? Can they get their questions answered very quickly? Can we create a deeper technical experience for them? even outside of the trial itself. So like I mentioned, the things we're doing with our digital technical engagement, taking that what used to be our tech sales model and and making it more digital. That's cool. So when you guys go through this process of testing, are you primarily looking at quantitative metrics then that are coming back from from the software that you guys are building? Or are you doing any type of qualitative research to, to go validate like, hey, is this is the onboarding working well? Because there's obviously this, the quantitative can tell you 
what. It doesn't tell you why someone might have abandoned at this point. Do you guys do any research there? We do. So it happens in a couple of places. We have uh, we run squads that are cross-functional across across marketing and product and development and design each product. And then every Monday, we have this thing called Metrics Monday, where we get the cross-functional teams together and we share the insights around the metrics. So if we had a big spike or if we had a big decrease or if we had a change in engagement or if we did some experimentation that came out with a very interesting result, we actually share that across teams. And we really focus on why did things happen. So we have a, a dashboard everybody is religious in using on a daily basis that tracks all of our key metrics, whether it's you know visits, engage visits, trials, trial to win conversions, number of orders, things like that. But we also want to dive deeper into the, the ebbs and flows of the business itself and why things are happening and if the experimentation we're doing is helping or not helping. So we've got a lot of focus around that on a daily and a weekly basis. Do you actually go out though and do, do you have any way to access the trial users and do like one-on-one usability study or like a follow-up with them that's not so much quantitative, but it's just a... Our research team and design will do that. And they'll, they'll take a very thorough approach to both recording users using the product, getting their feedback. It's pretty thorough and, and also gives us some feedback. We usually don't do that until the product's been in market for a little bit longer. We've got some hypothesis of how we think it's doing. And then the research team will spend a couple of weeks diving a lot deeper into it. And we get some great feedback from that. I mean, honestly, as a product person, as much as I'd like to think I'm focused on a beautiful experience, the my lens versus our designer's lens is completely different. And they just see things we don't. Yeah, the friction points and filling in the whys. It Absolutely. takes time to go and do that, but it, it can tell you things. It helps you qualify the data and make sense of, especially when you're collecting, I'm sure at the level that you guys are collecting at, you have a lot of inbound you know, analytics coming back on what's happening. But it's really filling in that why piece is really important if you're going to start you know, changing design because you may not really understand the reason someone's abandoning. Maybe it's like, I couldn't find the installer, like, I don't know where the URL is. I had to <laughs> right. launch a server on my thing and I don't know how to local host, but I forgot the port number. And it's like the whole product's like not getting access because they don't know the port number for the server they installed or whatever the heck it is. And it's like, oh, they dropped off, you know, well, <laughs> they could figure out how to turn it on, like load the browser. <laughs> right. <laughs> and even behavioral things, you know, that we don't always think of, like putting a really cool graphic in the lead space that actually takes the attention away from the call to actions, right? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. We're proud of this. Hey, look at this cool graphic we built. But you know, when you have, we have a one of our designers uses a tool that tracks eye movements, and you think, wait a second, we're we're losing the focus here. <laughs> 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 but again, you know, we're you don't always see it from let that lens. So the design part of it for us has been so eye-opening because again, we've built a lot of best-in-class enterprise product for years, and as we shift into this digital go-to-market, it is all about the experience. It's all about how good the experience is, how easy the experience is, how frictionless it is. But it's, and it's also about how consumable and accessible the product is in the marketplace. You mentioned earlier, it sounded like, oh, you know, you know, engineering doesn't want to go back and, you know, necessarily add onboarding on all of this. So this gets into kind of like the company culture of like kind of who's running, who's running the, the ship, so to speak. So is it, 
engineering driven in your area? And how do you guys get aligned around those objectives? Because I've seen this before with larger enterprise clients where engineering is the most dominant force and they are, they tend to be, you know, sprints are often set up around developing a feature and all the plumbing and the functionality required to get that feature done. But there's not necessarily a collective understanding of, hey, if someone can't get from step A to step G, like horizontally across time, then all that stuff's a failure. Step F, which you guys went deep on is great, but no one can get from E to F. And so they definitely can't get the G. And so it like that, that's your qualifier of success. So how do you, how do you guys balance uh, who, who's running the shift? Is your product management kind of oversee the engineering? And can you talk a little bit about that structure? And Well, we certainly like to think and we call it offering management, by the way. And we call it offering management aside from product management for reasons because they we really do want the offering managers to feel like they're the CEO of their business and run the ship. Of course, development has a big say at the table, but they have a natural tendency to want to build capabilities that they're, you know, it's never going to go away. It's been that way for, for ages. We just don't want to fight that tendency, right? We want them to focus on building, not take six months to build an onboarding experience when they could build in really valuable functionality in that six months instead. So we really run it as a squad, just like many other companies. Offering management does lead a lot of the strategy with our apartments and development. But I would say that design is also a really, really key seat at the table for sure. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your squads. Then is this primarily a, a designer, a UX professional, a, and your offering manager? Are they kind of a team and then you pull in the requisite engineering representatives as you strategize? So on the digital, so my team is a digital offering management. So we're a subset of offering management, better known as product management. We will run the squads and the, the squads will be a cross-function of our product marketing team our performance marketing team, which is demand gen type marketing, they run the campaigns, design, development, the core product managers, because we're the digital product managers as such. And then there's the core product managers. They have all routes to market. We're just focused on the the digital ones. And that is the cross-functional squad that gets together on a weekly basis. And they run as a team, but it is led from a digital, from the digital perspective, it's led by the digital OM for our route to market there. That's interesting. So how do you ensure that there's some kind of IBM-ness <laughs> <laughs> to all these offerings then I, I, is, is, is your UX practice and the offering managers? I mean, they're obviously part of one, it sounds like they're part of one organization, but I imagine some of these tools, you might be crossing boundaries as you go from you know, tool X to tool Y you know, maybe you need to send data over like, oh, I have this package of stuff and now I need to deploy this model. And then we have a different tool for, you know, putting a model into production. And so, you know, there's some cross user experience there. How, how do you, can you talk about that? And that's really why design's been key because their job is to keep us honest on making sure that the experience is somewhat consistent, right? Across the tools. So they, they seem familiar to, especially within like a segment of, you know, data science, right? So somebody's using our, Watson Studio tool and then moves to our statistics or our modeler tool, this should be a very familiar experience across those. And so that's why Design Hat is really the lead in the experience part of it. And from a pricing and packaging, 
we try and maintain a consistency as much as possible across all the products. Again, that whatever level of familiarity you have in how we price and package things should be consistent across an entire segment. So we strive for that as well. And then on the digital side, in terms of the experience on the actual web, we partner with a team called the Digital Business Group. They are basically the hosts of our digital platform, and they maintain a level of consistency worldwide across all the products in terms of the digital journey itself with us. That's cool that you guys are keeping kind of these uh, checkpoints, uh, so to speak, as, as, as stuff goes out the door. You've got different lenses on it, you know, looking at it from different quality perspectives, I guess you could say. Earlier, you had mentioned uh, democratizing data science, and we hear this a lot. So are we talking about democratizing the results of the data science? So at some point, there's maybe decision support tool, or there's some kind of there's some kind of outcome coming from the data science. Is that what you're talking about, democratizing? Or are you saying for data scientists of all levels uh, of ability, it's more for the, the toolers as opposed to the consumers? It's about the capability, right? The ability to put more of these products in people's hands that thought that they might have been out of the reach or that they were too enterprisey or that they were for big companies. That's one of the key things that we want to do. And you look at some of our products, they start really, really low. You know, Cognos Analytics is another great example where people might have had a perception that it's really expensive, but we just introduced a new, new version of it and it's less than $100 a month. So you can get these powerful tools for analysis for a lot less than you think. Statistics is $99 a month. A lot of our Paygo products are significantly less. And so it allows these companies that you know might not have considered doing business with us to start small and build up. And that's one of the key things we noticed as we shifted to a subscription model was that we started to see double-digit increases in the number of clients that were new on products just because we opened up this new route to market. It doesn't mean that we still didn't maintain our enterprise face-to-face relationships because of course we did, but this allowed us to open up relationships with clients we might not have gotten to before. How are the changes affecting the legacy you know, users that you have? So I imagine you probably do have some people that are kind of used to, don't change my tool set. Like I've been using DB2 for 25 years, you know. How are they reacting to some of the changes? I imagine at some point, maybe you have some fat clients that turn into browser-based interfaces. They undergo some redesign at that point. Do you have a friction between the legacy experience and and maybe do you do employ kind of the the slow change mentality or do you kind of say, hey, no, we're going to cut it here. We're jumping to the new one and we're not going to, you know, kind of let the legacy drag us back. Like, can you talk about how you guys make those changes? Well, I think you know, as we're shifting towards this subscription model, our clients are too. We have clients that are demanding that this is the only way that they actually want to buy software is through a subscription model. So it's changing for them as well. So I think in many ways, it's a welcome change across the board. I can't think of any negativity that we've had in both the change for the consumption models on a subscription side, as well as the new UI changes in things that we're doing to the product that really update them and give them a modern feel. And I know a lot of the onboarding as well as a, is a welcome change, even for clients that are familiar with us. It helps them, right? Because they have to do less training internally to help people use the tool because now we're building it into the product. How do you measure that, that they're accepting that? Do you wait for that inbound feedback? Do you, do you see if there's attrition and then go talk to them? Like I, I imagine there's, there's some 
attrition that happens when you make a large tooling change? Is there a way to validate that? Like why that happened? Was it was it a result of changing too quickly? Any comments on that? I think it's a couple of things, right? I mean, we're we're constantly monitoring the flow of MRR and the contraction of revenue or the attrition that we get through some of our subscription to see if there's any anomalies there. But also where we always were very in tune with NPS. And a lot of our product managers are, you know, live and die in the verbatims. And we have the integration with Slack. So they get a lot of that feedback coming right at them constantly that they respond to. So we are very, very in tune with NPS and the feedback we're getting there. We're also getting a lot of reviews now on our software using tools like G2 Crowd where we keep an eye on that. So I think the feedback doesn't just come from one place. I mean, we'll look at the things like the, the flow through amplitude. You know, our clients, when they're coming in and doing the trial, are they getting stuck someplace? Are they falling off someplace? Are they falling off either at a specific page like the pricing page or are they falling off as soon as they get the trial because they don't know what to do with it? We look at things like that. We look at NPS in particular after we've introduced new capabilities. Did our NPS go up? What's the feedback? You know, are clients truly embracing this? So I think it's a combination of things. There's a lot of information, a lot of data that we just need to stay in tune with. We've got a couple of dashboards that I know my team wakes up with every day and, and takes a look at. And the product team, the core product managers stay very focused on NPS. Do you have a way of collecting end user feedback directly in like probably I would imagine maybe in your newer tools it's easier to, to tool some of that in but is there any way to provide customer feedback or you know some chat or any type of interactivity that's directly in the the tools you're creating these days sure we are rolling out more in product nurture capability than we ever had before so that gives them the ability to chat directly within the product, as well as actually schedule a time with an expert. We're working on getting that, making that even easier through a chat bot. So if you do get stuck and you're chatting with the bot, you can schedule the appointment with an expert right there. So I think there's lots of ways to do that. I think sometimes I worry that there's too much data coming at us, but you know, we complain we didn't have any before. So I'm not going not gonna to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, right. It's not about data, right? It's a, do we have information? Do we have information? Exactly. I would say my team spends a, an, a lot of time going through that, you know, looking at amplitude, analyzing the flows, looking at the patterns and the orders and the data and the revenue, looking at the NPS feedback. I mean, it's a combination of all of that stuff that really gives us a good view, as well as looking at the chat data, right? And analyzing some of the keywords that's coming across on the, on the chats. The Watson robots are constantly learning, which is great. So we've, we're using machine learning to get smarter about what do people ask about. And that's giving us also some good insight into the questions they ask, the, the patterns of information they're searching for by product. In terms of the net promoter score that you talked about, tell me about the fact that how do you interpret that information when not everybody is going to provide a net promoter score? So you have nulls, right? <laughs> right. How do you factor that in such that you're not getting... That, that's kind of the argument, right, against NPS as a leading indicator sometimes is not, not having any information. So you, you may not be collecting positive or potentially negative stuff because people don't even want to take the time to you know, respond. Do you, do you have any comments on how you guys interpret that? 
But I think you also have to look at uh, NPS is going to go up and down, right? If you had a client who has a particularly bad experience and there was, uh, it was the week of Thanksgiving and there was only X amount of surveys and, and one of them had a bad experience, it could make your NPS score look like it drops like a rock, right? It, we always joke around that you got to look at it like the stock market, that it's, <laughs> it's more of the patterns over the long haul. And you know what's coming across within those patterns and information and feedback that clients are giving you. So we try not to react to, I mean, we react, but you have to look at the data set. You have to look at the environmental things that are happening and take that all into consideration from an MPS perspective. I mean, we, we're very driven by that. Uh, our, and that comes down from our CEO. She's very cognizant of making sure that the product teams and the development teams are getting that feedback directly from the clients. You know, as an organization, it, you know, we're, we have, we're a few years old, right? The way we used to do that is we would have these client advisory boards. And it was a small number of clients that would give us feedback on our products and roadmap and the usability of that. The reality is, is that you're, then you end up building the product for like 10% of your clients. So now it's been eye-opening for us as we really open that up. Obviously, we're still getting feedback from a larger community and client advisory boards still, but NPS comments and feedback has really widened the aperture of the feedback that we've gotten from a broader scope of clients. Yeah, you brought up a good point. I, I had a client who, who luckily was cognizant of this and they did the same things where they have, you know, they fly their clients in and they do, you know, large, you know, two-day workshops and they gather feedback from them. And I was doing some consulting there and he said, you know, hey, Brian, I'd like you to go, just go walk around, drop in on some of the conversations and just listen, but take it with a grain of salt because I hate these freaking things because all we do is we invite people that are willing to come for two to three days and tell us how much they love our stuff. It's a free trip. We're not getting to the people that don't like our stuff. So take it with a grain of salt. Or don't use it. Or don't use it at all. <laughs> exactly. You know, so these are, I, I love the concept of design partners, which is, which is kind of new, where you might have a stable of customers who are highly engaged, but the, the good ones are the ones that are engaged who will pummel you when, when your stuff is not happening. That's right. They will come down on you and they will let you know. So it's, it's really about finding highly communicative and people that are willing to tell it like it is. It's not go out and find people, the rah-rah, you know, cheerleading crowd for you. Did that inspire any of the changes? Like, oh, the boards, like, <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, and even in the too. client advisory councils that we had, and I, I ran a couple of them um, for products like Natiza for a while. We started to change the way we even ran those, and I remember the biggest aha moment was we had a a, a client advisory board for Natiza one year, and uh, not too long ago, we decided to run a design thinking camp as a part of the agenda. So that they would actually drive the what they wanted from a requirements perspective, going through the design thinking process to do that. And what we what came out of it was truly eye opening because you know how those how a design thinking process progresses. And so he, I think even they were surprised at what they ended up prioritizing across the group of requirements. And so I think we're really starting to think differently about that feedback from clients and. I, re- I do remember that day where we were kind of looking at listening and wow, that was not where we thought we would end up. Do you have a specific memory about something that was surprising to the group that really stuck? You know, something you guys learned in particular that, that stuck with you? 
I think we focused a lot more at that point on, uh, at the time, there was a lot of issues around security. And so what was one of our leading things going into the next version and uh, what clients actually were were not necessarily as, as verbal about was that as they were using these appliances and they were becoming more mission critical, they were doing more mixed workloads. So yes, security was still incredibly important. But what was emerging beyond that for them was workload management because they had this mixed workload that was emerging because so many different groups were jumping in with different types of workloads they had not anticipated on their data warehouse appliance. And so it was something that I think came out in the mix in the design thinking process that was important to them that they actually hadn't been able to verbalize to us outside of that process, which was really, really interesting to us. I mean, yes, what we we were on track with the requirements that we had, but beyond that, the requirements we just hadn't thought of and quite honestly, they hadn't verbalized. You make a good point there. Part of the job of design is to get really good clarity on what the problems are and and they're not always going to be voiced to you in words or in direct statements. It's It's your job to uncover the latent problems that are already there, crystallize them so ideally you're whoever your product management organization and your leadership can can understand and like make them concrete because then you can go and solve them. And when they're not concrete and vague, like we need better security. Well, what does that mean specifically? And if you start there and really the problem had to do with, you know, the mixed workloads and managing all of that, it's like you can go down a completely different path. You can still write a lot of code and you can build a lot of stuff and you can do a lot of releases. But if you don't really know what that problem is that you're solving, then you're just going through activity and you're building out. You're actually building debt. You're building more technical debt. You're wasting money and time for everybody. And you're not really driving the experience better for the customer. So I think you made a good point about that, that the design thinking helps uncover the reality of what's there when it's not being explicitly stated. Support requests are not going to get that type of information. They, they tend to be much more tactical. You're not going to get a, hey, strategically, I think the product <laughs> needs to go this direction. Like Right. And if you would have asked it as an open-ended question, you would have gotten an answer that could have been interpreted slightly differently, right? And so that was, I think that's when I became like the biggest fan of design is that here was this magical person who was running this design camp for me that got to information that I didn't think I could get to. <laughs> And he knew nothing about the product. <laughs> so it was, it was pretty amazing. That can happen, but you also get that, you get a fresh lens on things, even when they may not be a domain expert. You get used to seeing the friction points that people have. And when you, you, you can ask questions in a way to extract information that's not biased, you're not biased by the legacy that might be coming along with that product or even that domain space. It's sometimes having that almost like, first grade, like, tell it to me like I'm your grandfather or, you know, like, <laughs> right. explain that to me this way. And then you can start to see like, where some of those friction points are and, and, and make them real. So I always kind of enjoy that process of when you're really fresh, like whether you're maybe it, this happens for other people, but especially as a designer and consultant, coming into a product in a new domain, and just having that first grader lens on it, like, Hey, can you unpack that for me? What is the, what is a workload? And they're like looking at you like, what? And you make them unpack that, but you kind of give that full honesty there to really get them to extract uh, out of their head into words that you that everyone can understand. And that's where some of those magical things happen. Like, oh my gosh, like we had no idea this was a problem. Like, because it maybe he thought or he or she thought it was so obvious. Like, of course they know this. And it's like, no, no one's ever said that. <laughs> right. 
And we're, we're experiencing that now because we have uh, an embedded designer into our team that's focused on our growth products. And again, she's coming in with a complete fresh set of eyes that is, and her perspective that she brings on the experience is just so completely different, not completely different, but there are things that she flushes out we would have never seen. <laughs> it's really helping because a lot of times, you know, too, when you're focused on the experience as opposed to the features and functions analysis, right? And you come down to looking at it from that perspective. Part of me thinks, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to go to development and, and tell them this because it's like calling their baby ugly. But, you know, at the end of the day, if the client needs to have a great experience, they need to see the value when they're even just trying the product out, they can't, if they don't get to that aha experience, like I know how this will help me within 15 minutes, we're, we're just not nailing it, right? And if they can't figure out how to jump in and use the product, we're not nailing it. And it doesn't matter how great the product is, right? If they can't figure out how to effectively interact with it. Yeah, I mean, if effectively, none of the stuff really exists in their world, right? It just doesn't exist because they can't get to it. So effectively is totally worth, <laughs> totally worthless. Like whatever that island you have on the island, if there's no bridge to get there, it doesn't matter because it's just totally inaccessible. So. Right. And it's hard sometimes for even the product managers to see it. I mean, I was sitting down looking at a demo of a product that we're going to be releasing and he was cruising through the demo and I, I, I kind of, my, my eyes were like glazed over and I just looked back and said, oh yeah, we're going to need some onboarding with that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, great product, amazing capabilities, very complex and dense in its capability. It's really never about whether it's a great product. It's about whether the client understands that it's great when they start using it to me. Yeah. And I think especially for, you know, analytics tools, highly technical tools used by engineers and other, you know, people that have that are working in this kind of domain. Sometimes, sometimes we gloss over stuff that seems like it would be totally easy or just not important. I, I, I had a specific example. I was working on, on, a, on a storage uh, application. It was a tool for, I think it was for migrating storage between like an old appliance and a new appliance. And at some point during that workload migration, something as simple as like, oh, I need a list of these host names and these IP addresses and some other, some other information that's just basically setup related stuff and all the tool really needed to do was have a CSV download of a bunch of numbers to go type into another thing so that they could talk to each other. It's not sexy. It's literally a CSV was the only technical lift required, but it was not seen as engineering as a feature. It's not part of the product, right? That has to do with some other product that you have to go type it into. It's like, yes, but that bridge is never going to happen if it takes them 10 years to go figure out where all these IP addresses are listed and domain names and all this kind of stuff. It's not sexy, but in, in, if you look at the big picture of the full end-to-end -end arc, and if we're all aligned around what is that you know, like A to G workflow, there's six steps that have to happen there. This is not sexy. It's not a new feature, but this is the blocker from getting from B to E. And, and they're never going to get to H, which is where the product begins. Like. <laughs> Right. We definitely had those discussions in the early days about making it more consumable instead of giving it more features and functions. And, and can we really hack growth that way? And that is a mind shift that if you are a design-led organization, you get it. And we believed in every part of our being that we are. Sometimes we still have that natural resistance that 
we really need to add more features and functions to make this product grow. But I, I think we've really turned the corner on that. And digital really has been the test for us to do that because we build the experience and the products as if there is no IBM sales team that's going to surround you to help make you a success. And that's a very different way that we've done things for so many years. And the only way you can do that is by focusing on the experience. You bring up a good point. And I think that's, it's worth reiterating it to listeners. And that's, you know, you can, you can add these features, but they do come at a cost, right? The cognitive load goes up. Every time we add to the tool, we're effectively reducing the simplicity of everything else around it. Because typically, as a general rule, removing choice simplifies because you're just removing the number of things that someone has to think about. So those features don't really come for free. It's almost like you have a debt as soon as you add the feature in, and then you hope you recoup it by, oh, there's high engagement. People are really using that. So that was a win. If there's low engagement with it, you just added, it's like Microsoft Word 10 years ago. You just added another menu bar and another thing that no one's going to use. And now it's even worse. The pile continues to grow. And it's so hard to take stuff out of software once it's in there because you're going to find, you know what? But IBM's right. our Somebody's client using and it. they're yeah. using it. <laughs> exactly. IBM pays us $3 million a year. We're not <laughs> right. taking that button out of the tool. Right. End of story. And now you have that short term, like, we can't take that out because Nancy's tool group uses this. <laughs> That's right. And we can't disappoint them exactly. I think my favorite story when it comes to that is the Instagram story that people talk about where it was launched as a tool called a product called bourbon. Somebody obviously likes bourbon and it had all of this great capabilities and it was going nowhere. And so they dug in on the usability side of things and said, well, what are people actually using? Which is what we do as well from an instrumentation perspective and found that they were really only using a couple things. They wanted to post a picture. They wanted to comment on the picture. They wanted to add some sort of emojis or like system to the picture. And so they said, all right, let's take a step back. Let's just do three or four things and do them really great and relaunch the product. And then of course, the rest is history, right? But I think that that's a great illustration of more features and functions. If they're not important, relevant, and consumable, all three of those things are not going to give you growth. And it, it comes down to, is it is it easy to use? Can I get value out of it? Do I immediately see that I can get value out of it? And that's all, you know, that's all product market fit. So that's that's where we've shifted our focus and digital has helped us do that. So that's why my job is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> cool. This has been like super fun. I'm, I'm wondering, can you leave us with uh, maybe an anecdote? Like do you have a, a lesson, a big lesson learned or something you might recommend to people that are either building it, you know, internal tools, internal enterprise software, or even SaaS products, like something like, hey, if I was starting fresh today, you know, I might do this instead of doing that. Anything from your experience you could share? For me, the biggest thing is this really focusing on product market fit, because we build something sometimes to be competitively great, but not necessarily competitively great and competitively different for that. And so to understand that you not only have something that solves somebody's problem, but does it in a way that's unique and that's so valuable that they'll pay the price that's appropriate for whatever they'll pay for it. And you got to start thinking about that up front because oftentimes we'll build something we see a market opportunity for, but we may not truly understand product market fit. Whereas we know who the target is. We know what they'll pay for this. We know what the value is. We know how to get to them. And I think 
you got to start with that up front. Like you really got to understand product market fit or you're never going to be able to grow the product. And then, you know, I've got a lot of religion around that. And we really try very, very hard to create pricing and packaging around making sure we hit that. But the product has to have that value. It can't be too overwhelming. It can't be too underwhelming. It's got to, it's got to hit that right value spot. Fully agree on getting that fit up front. You save a lot of save a lot of time. You could solve a lot of technical debt and instead of jumping in with big projects that you then have to change immediately because you find out after the fact and now you're starting it like <laughs> See an Instagram, not a bourbon, right? You know, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, cool. Tell us uh, where where can people find you on the interwebs out there? Ah, well, I probably spend a lot of time on Twitter. Maybe not so much lately. It's been a little bit crazy, but you can find me on Twitter at Nancy. K-O-P-P-D-W, stands for data warehousing, got a long background in data warehousing. Or you can find me on LinkedIn. I am going to try and do better. I am on Medium. I haven't done as good about blogging, but that's one of my goals for uh, trying to get back on blogging. But I'm, uh, I'm usually out there either on Medium or Twitter talking about growth hacking and digital transformation. I do podcasts as well. Cool. I will uh, put those uh, links up in the show notes for anyone. And Thanks for uh, coming to talk uh, talk with us, Nancy. It's been fun. So this has been Nancy Hensley from uh, IBM Analytics, the Chief Digital Officer. So thanks again for coming on the show and uh, hope we get the chance to catch up again. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.